You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, starting to get cold out there. Yeah, I dig it. It's your conditions. That's right. This does, is what I'm made for. Does this make you feel more like uh, hockey season is in full swing? Yeah, that and being reminded that the big problem with hockey season is all the hockey gear. I don't have a good place for it, so it just piles up on the floor in my office. Um, so that's a pretty good reminder, tripping over that in the middle of the night. You don't have like a mesh bag or anything? Aren't you supposed to have like a... You know, I have a bag to carry it all in. However, I learned early on uh, in playing hockey, as your your friend Sam Keen uh, regaled me with a story about when he first started playing hockey and after the first game, one of his friends said... There's two kinds of hockey players. There's the kinds that empty out their bag of all their gross gear so that it does not get grosser and mildew sitting in there together right after a game, all sweaty and gross. And uh, there's the other kind. And you got to decide what kind you're going to be, and you make that choice right now. I've decided to be the kind that just dumps it all on the floor in the office. Okay. I mean, that's, that's one direction to go, right? Right. Hey. You know, if you've got better ideas that also require me doing as little work, I'd I feel love like to hear I already it. said mesh bag. I feel like right away I threw mesh bag out there and as my what lifestyle. Time choice will you be you. coming over here with the giant mesh bag? Look, I'm the idea guy, man. I'm not here to also be your manservant. You know how big a mesh bag you'd need for all that crap? Mesh bag. Multiple mesh bags? Hell out of here. I don't know. There's an entire store in our town dedicated to hockey supplies. Hockey Wolf, been in there. Maybe you should go in there. Nary a mesh bag in the place. I bet you could go in there and ask him for some gear storage tips. Ask him for some leads on mesh bags? I bet there's a guy in there, salty old hockey dog. The Hockey Wolf is probably in there, and he'd probably tell you how to get your gear squared away. You know, this sounds like a sequel to the Chad Dundas noir hockey detective mystery because you start asking around too many questions down at the hockey wolf next thing you know you're never seen from again or never heard from again and uh detective chad dennis has to go figure out what happened to you i always get myself in trouble sticking my beak in where it doesn't belong ben i think we can all agree though that i would kill you at the new game uncaged what no no we cannot agree on that we've been telling all the little co-maniacs about uncaged for three weeks now the new fighting slash deck building card game sure to be a hit with mma and gaming nerds everywhere in uncaged which we all know i would murder ben folks in if we played what you can select from an increasing number of fighters and styles ranging from brazilian jiu-jitsu to muay thai and everything in between just pick up a deck to attack your opponent and lay into them with jabs high kicks takedowns and submissions uh that's just what i would do to you ben and uh you would likely have no choice but to try to weakly counter all my dope moves you've been spending a lot of time thinking about this haven't you i'm just saying yeah, you're just saying. Well, I'm just saying, you get everything you need to start playing Uncaged right away if you buy the game from the Wizards over at Z-Mind Game Studio. You get 50 technique cards and two decks, four fighter cards, the game manual, a score sheet, and a level change token. With a bevy of future expansion cards headed your way, you know you'll be able to customize your deck any way you see fit, perhaps to incorporate your awesome jujitsu game. Doesn't matter. No amount of customizing would save you. I would destroy you. But for the rest of you, if you can hear the sound of my voice... 
Just go to uncaged-cards.com and take a look at all the cool stuff going on with Uncaged. At the site, you can watch a video tutorial giving you some brief instructions on how to actually play the game, and then you can order away. Just beware if you happen to have a friend who might totally beat you at the game like I would definitely beat Ben. Again, that's uncaged-cards.com. Go there today and get your journey into the world of Uncaged started. That's uncaged-cards. Com. Glad the sponsor can serve as an opportunity for you to just trot your delusions out in front of everyone. That's no nice. delusions. That's a you, nice thing. You're the puppet. We got music again this week from our guy, The Mind of Dre. His new album, The Prescription, is out, and you can find it over at SoundCloud.com slash The Mind of Dre. And if you like what you hear, you can also follow him over on Twitter at The Mind of Dre. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Kevin Lee is out here following that tried and true path to UFC stardom. First, you beat Megamed Mustafev. Then you beat Francisco Trinaldo. Then you say some shit about Michael Chiesa's mom, and boom, you're fighting for the interim title. And in round number two, hey, Ray Borg, you feel like cutting some more weight? Cool, man. See you Saturday, maybe. And in round number three, obligatory Conor McGregor round after obligatory Conor McGregor quotes make obligatory Conor McGregor headlines. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Jeremy Thompson. He writes, I just wanted to write in to ask whether you guys happen to see the video of John O'Mears submitting Aaron Jones via Boston Freakin' Crab at Full Contact Contender 19 on Saturday. Yeah. I mean, everyone has seen it at this point, you right? you got to see that. If you are at all trolling around on the uh, Mixed Rules Combat Sports social media tip, I assume you have seen the video. Of the get, Boston Crab. I guess there are some people who fall in, like, you know, you got that Venn diagram of, like, People who are MMA fans and people who at least at some point in their life have been pro wrestling fans, at least enough to figure out what a Boston Crab is. I Maybe for some of those people, the headline didn't grab them the same way. But if you hear about, like, if you hear about somebody getting this submission, that's just the fact that they got it is a headline everywhere. And it sounds awesome, like the Boston Crab, and you don't know what it is, that's all the more reason for you to check it out. Really, like, if you hear about somebody getting, you know, the New Hampshire Panther on somebody, you're like, and everybody's freaking out about it. You've got to be like, okay, let's let's figure out what the New Hampshire Panther is. It's also generational because I saw some people referring to it as the Walls of Jericho. Ah, uh, okay. And then, as you know, any professional wrestler on Twitter or I guess Facebook, for that matter, if they see an opportunity to take credit for something, they're gonna <laughs> yes. they are yeah. gonna jump on there and do that. So I did see Chris Jericho uh, try to crack a few jokes about that. But yeah, no, I'm with you, Boston Crab. Yeah, that's a Boston crab, man. You know what? Okay. And I'm, I was watching the thing and like you, uh, having grown up as a boy in America watching professional wrestling. Yeah, sure. I've, I've tried a few Boston crabs on friends over the years. I've tried a Boston crab or two on my children just in the course of regular household wrestling. It made me wonder as I'm watching it, like, how does it actually make you submit? Because it's not the normal kind of submission move. And yet at the same time, you're watching it and you're going, that does seem unpleasant when somebody is really trying to crank on it. But it, how is it a submission exactly? Well, I think you maybe perhaps unwittingly just brought up the elephant in the room here, right? And that is the question. Did this look... Are you saying it was a work? Did this look what I would describe as fake as hell to you? 
Um, not really. Because, I mean, you can get out of that, right? Like, if can someone's you? going for the Boston Crab, can't you basically just flip yourself kind of upside down? And you are in a shitty position, but you are not in the Boston Crab anymore. And I guess in reference to your first question, I would assume that the Boston Crab puts some pressure on the lower back yeah, area, yeah. if correctly applied. Uh, I don't know if it would be enough to make a person with even one day of mixed martial arts experience tap out. Uh, I also feel like the position itself is probably avoidable. Yeah, see, it seems like one of the solutions to the Boston Crab is don't get in the Boston Crab. But I don't know, maybe if you're tired or whatever and mentally broken, maybe that, that kind of thing could happen to you. Although a little weird thing happened to my brain when I was watching it, because when you see like a pro wrestling move being applied, a part of me was just like, why doesn't he just reach out and grab the cage, therefore forcing the the, right. the hold to be released? Or you're like, where's his manager? Yeah, where is your where's manager? Where's his manager to break like his cane over the back of this guy's head while the uh, the referee's not looking? You need yourself a new manager. He's not even, even going to throw any salt in the guy's eyes or anything? Come on. What's he there for? He's not earning his 10%, I'll tell you that much. I mean, all due respect, right, to John O'Mears and uh, Aaron Jones. John O'Mears, who you basically just accused of, of working a fight. I'm just saying it looks strange to me in the footage. Oh, yes, it looks strange. It's a Boston freaking <laughs> crab. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. I'm sure it was on the level. Uh, the next question this week comes from Neil in Northern Ireland, who writes, Remember when the most annoying thing about Verdum was that face he pulls? Bet you wish those days were back now. That incident last week and the slurs he used got me thinking, uh, is all press in some way good for the UFC or is stuff like this harmful to its image? I mean, the slurs are obviously wrong, but it's like likely people may wish to tune in now to see him get beat up. Or, or does it give an open goal to the people who just say MMA is barbaric, oafs locked inside a cage? Oh, and just in case uh, the Verdum, Ver, Verdum slurs weren't public enough, remember that our boy Bisping is going to be on TV this week. That should be interesting. Uh, so this was both, I would say, ugly and unnecessary. Yeah. Uh, at a media lunch this past week, UFC heavyweight, former heavyweight champion Fabricio Verdum, uh, got into a war of words, I guess you could say, with uh, UFC prospective interim lightweight Titleist, challenger, uh, Tony Ferguson, and uh, Verdum just started uh, dropping Spanish anti-gay slurs all over the place. Yeah, a lot of them. You know, and okay, I think that this is one where there's a bunch of different factors going on here and contributing to make this look like, you know, not a great day for your, bear, your boy Go Horse. Because for one thing, you get into it like so aggressively and like standing up really menacingly against a lightweight when you're a heavyweight. And again, when, once Tony Ferguson stands up, the size difference is very apparent between those two. Yeah. It's all, you're already kind of seem like a bully at that point. Like you don't seem like you're, you're proven any tough guy credentials that you haven't already proven by fighting heavyweights in the cage just by like going in there and being all threatening to a lightweight. So already you're probably not going to come out that great on this one. Um, but then these slurs and, you know, I was talking to uh, Fernanda uh, Pratt as a, a MMA junkie, our, our colleague there in Brazil, and she was saying, you know, I think there is a cultural difference in how that stuff is viewed and used between Brazil and America, um, that it's thrown around a lot more uh, frequently and with less thought in Brazil, not saying that her, she wasn't saying that it should be, but that it is, and so that maybe uh, there is a cultural difference there. And so it's like, okay, maybe if you wanted to give him a pass, you 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 almost could, except that he's also on the payroll 
of the violently anti-gay Chechen dictator who is, from all accounts, in the middle of a murderous purge of gay men in Chechnya. And so those things all kind of come together here in a really terrible way for Fabrizio Verdum. Yeah, and like Neil from Northern Ireland points out immediately, uh, I had originally given Fabrizio Verdum some criticism back when he was UFC heavyweight champion because every time they put him on camera, he would make that face. I know. He would make Verdum face. The face And really I got think you. that my point was, man, you got to give us something more Here than you just go. making Verdum face every time he's on camera. Are you happy and now? now I'm like, nope. Like, he should have <laughs> stuck with Verdum face. He absolutely should have just kept making that face every time he was on camera because the stuff that he has given us since then has not been... Uh, complimentary, shall we say, to the public image of Fabricio Verdum. Now, let me ask you this. Is it better or worse that these slurs from Verdum are kind of basically in his third language, right? Because Verdum, a native Portuguese speaker, but is proud of his Spanish, right? Yeah. He spent a lot of time in Mexico training in and around his, his fights with Cain Velasquez. Uh, and this is what I assume happened. Like, he goes, he switches over to Spanish because he knows he's in a war of words with Tony Ferguson, right? Isn't that what happened here? And then then he goes with the anti-gay slurs, which makes me think, like, maybe he didn't fully understand what he was saying, but also, like, to get there in a, in a language that is not Portuguese or English seems like it takes some mental gymnastics. I don't know that you could drop those kind of swears on someone in like a third language without fully understanding what you were doing. Yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying, that when when you have learned that many different languages, you might not understand like connotative meaning behind different uh, swears and, and slurs. I was a little bit alarmed. Like, he, it was like the fifth word out of his mouth, too, right. as soon as that thing started. Like, it was like Tony Ferguson turned to him while he was talking, saying like, hey, I'm trying to talk, like, be quiet. And, you know, already like Tony Ferguson trying to do a little bit of, uh, a superstar move on Fabrizio Verdum, but then he just he went zero to sixty really fast on that. So I don't know. I I'm, I am curious though about this question about uh, obviously it's not a, a great look for the UFC either, and I'm sure especially with this one since Dana White uh, took a public beating over doing it, and since other fighters have done it, I'm sure he wishes that this slur would really stop coming out of the mouths of UFC fighters because it's just not helpful at all. But d even if there's like a minor you know, gaff from a fighter that he has to go out and apologize for and has to say, okay, like, here's my penance that I'm doing for it is a part of the UFC. Like, well, everybody's paying attention to that now. And now some people have a reason to tune in if only to see for BC over possibly get beat up by Derek Lewis. Yeah. And I guess the, the reason that I question whether Verdum fully understood what he was saying in Spanish was like his defense of this after the fact was sort of to say like this word that I used is common. Uh, in Spanish and, and like, I didn't mean to, uh, offer any of offense to, to like, to the gay and lesbian community to which we all see and roll our eyes and think, come on, Fabricio Verdum, you knew exactly what you were doing. Uh, so I was just bringing up the point of, you know, he's, he's out here speaking his third language. Maybe he's, I mean, I feel like it's almost worse. Really? You, yeah. That like, if you're going to go that deep in the arsenal of your of your language skills that you probably know what that word means. Well, and also you I guess you could ask yourself, he speaks English, he knows Tony Ferguson speaks English. If you're if you're going to get into a war of words with the guy where you want to throw some uh 
you know, insulting language around, why didn't you do it in English? Probably because we, we would have immediately seized on that word pretty quickly if in English, right? Back to the face for Fabrizio Verdu, I think is what we, uh, is the answer here, right? Just oh, no more talking. What, Back what to the face. Bitter turnaround this must be for you. <laughs> it's ironic. Next question this week comes to us from Daisy in Toronto. He or she writes, Rory McDonald did several interviews last week where, among other things, he discussed wanting to win three different Bellator championships and also said he was quote-unquote frustrated that Bellator hadn't gotten him more fights. My question is in two parts. One, are we witness are we witnesses to the dawn of the McDonald era in Bellator? And two, is it only a matter of time before he bails and heads back to the UFC? Thanks. I'll hang up and listen. Uh, so, yeah, Ben, Rory McDonald was on a bit of a media tour last week coinciding with uh, tickets going on sale for his Bellator welterweight championship fight against Douglas Lima on January 20th. Uh, I was one of the people that interviewed Rory McDonald. I feel like Rory McDonald has come out of his shell a little bit now that he's over there in Bellator, almost as though he either realizes or anticipates that he's at another level than many of the people he's going to fight in Bellator. And maybe he feels like he has an added promotional, uh, you know, task now that he's over in Bellator. Like he feels like he needs to be a little bit more of the face of the organization than he did when he was in the UFC. So he's, he's letting his proverbial hair down a little bit here, showing up dressed like a cat burglar for, uh, <laughs> for his stare down with Douglas Lima. And uh, did in fact say that, that his game plan, like if we, if you let Rory McDonald book this thing himself, what he would do would be to fight, uh, Douglas Lima in January, and then if he wins, immediately turn around and fight the winner of the Bellator middleweight title fight uh, a couple of months after that. And if he wins that, well, hell, just chuck caution to the wind and go ahead and fight for the light heavyweight title, which, if if it was still around the waist of Ryan Bader, would be uh, by an awful lot yeah. in a fight like that for a guy the size of Rory McDonald. Well, you know, maybe you talk about, is he letting his hair down? Part of it might also just be that he feels a little more comfortable in front of the cameras and in front of the microphones with experience and maturity. I mean, he's 28 now, right? I think we kind of forget how young Roy McDonald was when he first came on the scene in the UFC. Because I know I interviewed him, it feels like, probably five years ago now or something. Uh, and it kind of struck me then, like, at first, this guy seems really flat and emotionless and a really tough interview. But then also, he was very young and hadn't had a ton of experience with that kind of stuff yet. So... That could be part of it. Uh, I am curious, though, about this idea from suggested by Daisy in Toronto. Like, uh, you know, if, okay, said this is the McDonald era in Bellator, is it possible to go over in Bellator, especially if you're still as young as Roy McDonald is, and basically increase your star value, especially when you have more of the stage to yourself over there in Bellator? And get people more excited about you. And then can you become a bigger deal that the UFC will want to try to get you back uh, during a free agency period and you know, kind of work that same game in reverse? I think it's possible if, if things go right for Rory McDonald over there. Like, I don't know if you're going to become better exposed or get bigger exposure than you would have already gotten in the UFC. But think about it this way. Like, what if what if Rory McDonald's say, like, five-fight run in Bellator is that he beats Paul Daly, which we all know he already did. He blew, blew, through, blew through that one. If he beats Douglas Lima in January, and then he needs to catch a break on this one because uh, Gegard Mousasi is fighting Rafael Carvalho for the middleweight title. So let's say Mousasi wins that and becomes the middleweight champion. 
So McDonald goes daily, Lima, then fights Musasi right after that. And if he won that, then you either got a fight against Ryan Bader or kind of the low-hanging fruit against Chael Sonnen, which is the other fight that they're talking about right now for Rory McDonald and Bellator, which just sounds like a funeral for the bad guy. Beep, beep. Let's back it up a little bit. Let's go back to the point where where he beats Musasi for the middleweight title. I'm just saying, you asked me a question. Could he build himself into a more marketable and desirable commodity for the UFC. And I'm saying, if that's your five-fight run for for for, Bell, for uh, Rory McDonald and Bellator, then yes. Well, I don't even think you need that, though. I mean, I think if... I, that's why I'm saying stop after he beats Musasi. Because if he beats if he beats Lima for the welterweight title and turns right around and beats Yegard Musasi, who also left the UFC on a bit of a high note and as a very respected middleweight who, you know, you throw Musasi in there against Michael Bisping tomorrow, and Musasi's probably the favorite. If he goes out there and then beats Musasi, I don't think then you need any other next step to make him into a star that UFC would like to have back. I think that would do it. I mean, that would be a pretty big accomplishment, and especially if you're able to do it by beating Musasi, because then it it feels more like a known quantity to MMA fans. They know what to make of that win, perhaps more than they do uh, a win over Douglas Lima. What if he beat uh, Ryan Bader, though? Come You're on, telling man. me Roy McDonald's out here with a belt collection? Every He's got every belt in Bellator? I can suspend only so much disbelief. <laughs> they have uh, these weight classes for a goddamn reason. I just Let's talk a little bit about the second half of this question for uh, Daisy. Is, he, is it only a matter of time before he bails and goes back to the UFC? I want to say two what I felt were kind of like interesting turns of events in my interview with Rory McDonald. Number one, when he was mapping out this future for himself about who he wanted to fight, uh, Douglas Lima and then the middleweight champion. The way he phrased it was, Gegard Mousasi is fighting, uh, I can't remember who he's fighting, but if he wins, then I would like to fight him for the middleweight title. So Rory McDonald could not recall the name of Bellator middleweight champion, Rafael Carvalho, who's fighting Mousasi. Can't remember the name of the champ but he does remember the name of Musasi. And then a few questions later, I was like, all right, well, let's say Rory McDonald uh, can just like script his own future. What are your, what are your own like fantasy matchmaking fights for yourself right now? And he named right off the top of his head, three fights, all of which are fights in the UFC. He named, <laughs> he would like to fight Conor McGregor. Okay. Uh, v, right. We all want to fight Conor McGregor yeah, at this point. Uh, and then he said he would like to have the Robbie Lawler fight back. And he would of like course. to have the Steven Thompson fight back. Uh, so that tells you a how these guys think about this shit because the two two of the three fights he wants the most for himself are his most recent losses, right? And then also three fights back in the UFC, which I thought maybe was telling, I don't know. That feels like a just saying stuff, like an early just saying stuff. Just saying. Uh next question is we comes to us from Chris Rennie, uh friend of the show, Chris Rennie. Yeah, does some awesome work. Noted artist. He read, we've heard many times, quote, no fight, no fighter is bigger than the UFC, and that is a practical and savvy business strategy, so much so that sometimes it felt like it was the UFC's marketing strategy as well. By making that statement public, the UFC was touting the promotion itself as the product's primary draw. However, the boom times can routinely be attributed to marquee names headlining pay-per-views from Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz and Randy Couture and then Brock, Anderson, and GSP. Yeah, and I finally, want to note it for the record that you're adding last names to a lot of these. It's, Chris Rini is doing a thing that you hate where it's just all first names throughout here. 
And Go finally, on. Conor McGregor, Ronda Rousey, and John Jones more recently. Those were not, that's not what's written there, but go on. I remember Matt Mitrione's comment after his discussion with Lorenzo Fertitta, quote, without us, all you have is a cage, camera, and lights, in a discussion that ended with Mitrione leaving for Bellator. How should we view the UFC? Is it more like a TV channel, like HBO, and we just have to wait around for the next Sopranos? So, Ben, clearly th- this is a uh, a long-standing and very conscious decision made by the UFC years and years ago, really, to to make the biggest star in the promotion, Dana White, well, rather than any fighters. Which, to some degree, made some sense. Yeah, Because I agree. fighters are going to come and go and uh, also have long absences, even when they're around, just due to injury or whatever. You can't rely on them getting up in front of the camera and making a sales pitch all the time. Dana White, at least in the old days, could, still conceivably could, but doesn't, uh, get out there and make the, the case every single time you have an event. So there was some sense to that. I also wonder, though, because it seems like part of this is the assumption that this is a thing that the UFC is doing for leverage over the fighters, is keeping fighter any particular fighter from becoming bigger than the brand. And you could kind of make an argument there that that, too, would be sound business in a way when you look at what's happened with Conor McGregor, where he has gotten bigger than the brand and is using that to call his own shots, and he's not terribly easy to deal with. And the UFC has historically preferred the fighters to be, I don't want to say needy but has preferred it that they want the kind that uh when they say jump the fighter says how high and in order for that to happen the fighter needs to to feel like uh you know he's relying on you you're the one calling the shots you're the one in charge and once you let him get in that position where he feels like he's in charge you know they're going to use that a lot of times so but it does feel like times like this you're you're suffering from a lack of from building from not building more stars because if you have just the one guy and he's off doing something else, or you have you know two guys and one of them suspended and one's off doing something else, do you sit around as the UFC and think we should have been harder at work trying to make more stars? Yeah, maybe so. And I think uh, it's a double-edged sword in some ways because uh, I agree with you. You can definitely understand the rationale be- be- behind uh, trying to make you know a guy who's going to be a very consistent presence, a very consistent face in front of the camera you know, the top star in your in your fight organization. Like, can you imagine the chaos that would have ensued if early on the UFC had decided, okay, well, clearly uh, John Jones is, is the greatest fighter on the planet, maybe the greatest fighter of all time. We should just throw unbelievable amounts of money into, like, propping this guy up as the face of the company. And now suddenly, the way things have turned out, you you know, you're looking at a potential four-year absence for a guy that that you put his face on all the billboards right well and if you look at this list that chris Rini lays out uh who about that would you not say that that would have been like any single one of them would have turned out to be a a bad idea at some point along the road if you're relying on them to be the face of the company you know you got chuck liddell who fell off hard and then had to be kind of forcibly retired randy couture who they had the big you know kind of business uh, discrepancies, differences with, where Dana White ended up saying that there's nobody more of a man inside the cage and less of a man outside the cage, which was pretty harsh. Brock Lesnar with his whole, you know, steroid stuff coming back from pro wrestling. Anderson Silva, also leg break. Ty Sex Juice coming back. Uh, GSP gets abducted by aliens, leaves the sport. Dana White turns purple yelling about it. Um, You know, McGregor, we saw what happens there. Ronda Rousey wants to go be in Roadhouse until they figure out she can't act. Then she wants to go can't act in the WWE. And then John Jones. I mean, like, 
you could kind of see the logic has has been borne out by the events that maybe it was right to have Dana White be the yeah. face of the company. No, and I think for a long time it really paid dividends for the company to have done that. But here's the follow-up question. Does this slash should this approach kind of change now? Because if you think about where we are, you've got Conor McGregor at, at the moment kind of standing in as the the last remaining superstar on the UFC roster at this time. Uh, John Jones, obviously indisposed. Ronda Rousey gone, probably for good. And then Dana White is kind of, uh, I don't know if you would say he's accepted a lower profile position with the company, like a, uh, that he's lower profile now, but he just kind of seems tired, doesn't yeah. he? Like every time you see him, he just seems like he's been doing this for a long time. His bros don't own it anymore. Yeah. Uh, he just like more times than not, I think just kind of seems like not necessarily just going through the motions, but just sort of like you can tell he's been there a while. Yeah. Well, and I think that maybe through the years and through much of his own doing the Dana White brand has been damaged a little bit just because like if you ask like, you know, serious MMA fans about what they associate with Dana White, the two most likely things are one, if he says something is absolutely not happening, that means it's happening. Uh, and you know, two is as soon as a fighter displeases him, he can't wait to throw him under the bus. Like those are the the two most common things we've seen of him lately, and you see that kind of popping up in just like memes in the MMA world. So yeah, it is hard then to be the guy who's the carnival barker out there telling everybody how great this is if if that's what people associate you. But this question about like how should we view it is it you know a, a TV channel like HBO and we're and we're sitting around waiting for The Sopranos. I mean, I think one of the things that has changed my thinking about the UFC recently is to just think of it as it's become more of a content generation machine. It's not necessarily trying to knock it out of the park every single time. It's not trying to hit a ton of home runs. Just trying to get a, a whole load of singles that it can keep in supply. And this is what it tries to offer to like a future TV network is look at all the content we've built up just like through the Dana White contender series, the fight pass fights, just by having a sheer like hour count of fighting action to sell to somebody. Right. And like a clearly delineated uh, tipping point for that. I would say when it, the UFC signed its current broadcast deal with Fox uh, which kind of leads us into this next question. I think they relate, so I'm just going to read it from Sean Clark, who writes, I know this has somewhat been broached a lot in various ways, but can you two discuss what the future of the UFC content to be, specifically the show-slash-fights-per-card format? On one hand, the amount of content helps TV executives with programming, but this comes at the price of quality. Further Fight Pass seems to be a lame-duck platform. Uh, so the UFC is about to get out of its broadcast deal with Fox. Next year. Or, I mean, it might sign or, a new one. Or yeah. it re-ups, right? So the, the, uh, I think that the, uh, the exclusive negotiating period either just lapsed or it is about to lapse. So the UFC essentially is about to hit the open free agent market. Uh, and that really could have a lot to do with how we as fans interact with the product and how the product looks moving forward, depending on what happens with that next UFC broadcast deal. And I said that there was like a clearly delineated tipping point because, you know, if you rewind to the days before the Fox deal, the UFC essentially had events on Spike TV and then it had pay-per-view events. And after it signed the Fox broadcast deal, which was 
unilaterally hailed, right, as like a uh, an important watershed moment. Game changer. In the UFC's Changed march the to, uh, to mainstream acceptance. But it also changed the product that the UFC puts on TV in a lot of ways that I don't think anyone really anticipated because you had all of now all of these different tiers of programming that the UFC had to offer and, and basically like an expanded menu of live events because the UFC had to have shows on Fox Sports 1. It had to have events on the Fox Network. It had to do the occasional event on Fox Sports 2. And in addition to that, it still had to do its own pay-per-view well and its international expansion made it so that the fight pass only events there for a while where it was like trying to offer something in prime time to like a local market in poland or macau or something right um but also i think that one of the differences in the when it was spike and pay-per-view was that you there was a kind of a clear conveyor belt to the top that you could see like if you were fighting on spike and you could win uh, and you know, kind of build a name for yourself. Then you graduated to pay per view, basically. And we watched a lot of those guys come through where they would be on Spike TV, and then the next thing you know, they were on pay per view and fighting on the main card of a pay per view. And and it felt like you were watching them progress at a a reasonable and like kind of predictable rate. And now it seems a little different. Like you can especially see like guys who keep popping up on Fo- uh, big Fox like Fox Network fight cards, and it seems like, okay, they have some people that they want. The UFC definitely has some people that it wants on pay-per-view. Um, some people also end up sprinkled on uh, Fox Sports 1, but there's no guarantee that you might not win a title and then end up defending that shit on Fight Pass. Like, there's just a little less of a clear through line from one to the other. Yeah, and in an even bigger picture way to me, it just feels like the philosophy behind UFC programming has changed because back when it was only Spike TV and pay-per-view events – it felt as though the point was to put together the best fight cards you could. That was kind of the 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 driving force behind it. That's what drew people's eyeballs to the events was that, you know, you would get four or five fights on these Spike TV cards, all of which were going to be good fights featuring people that you knew. Now that, that you have all of these hours just to fill uh, on the various suite of Fox networks, it feels a lot more to me like you are you are frankly just trying to fill those hours because you're getting money for it. Yeah, which you're is just finding bodies basically, which is a much different approach than trying to put out the best product that you can. And to me, uh, as we see it now, almost in the rearview mirror, that is one of the great uh, negative aspects of the Fox deal, which which I don't think anyone really. Uh, anticipated before it happened. Like, it kind of changed the entire landscape of the UFC, arguably from a fan perspective, not for the better. Well, and I think, you know, before we wrap up this section of it, I think the one thing that worth worth noting about a future TV deal is that we don't know, depending on who they sign with, how that might further change it. Because one of the things that we've heard uh, that, you know, potential new TV partners might be looking for is more control over the product. And that's something that the UFC... Uh, had held on to really, really tightly, and I think wisely, you know, in the early days when it was looking at different TV partnerships, did not want to give up production control of the product. But now the new owners uh, might very well be happy to to give up more uh, control if it means less cost, and a new TV partner, having seen the way the UFC works, might want to be, like, able to have a say and, like, say, look, don't just save your best shit for pay-per-view on us uh, and use us as an advertisement for your pay-per-views. We want to have a say in who winds up on pay-per-view and who winds up on our fight card. So, I mean, that could change the picture a whole lot. 
Uh, it's probably a bigger discussion and one that we will continue to have, I assume, as as we move forward into this next phase of the UFC trying to score another broadcast deal, either from Fox or from somebody else. Uh, so we will keep an eye on that and continue to discuss it. That's going to do it, though, for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says... Email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all these days that we're not recording the podcast. I usually say it's short, but last week's Breakfast of Champions, it was pointed out to me on Twitter, was the opposite of short. People love them some noir fanfic. For the most part, yeah. Uh, I mean, let's just say people come down on one side or the other. Yeah, you have strong feelings about it. Uh, so we, it's it's typically short. It's informative. We would like to think it, it's funny. If you don't like the Breakfast of Champions newsletter, it's really easy to unsubscribe. And right now, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Free falling, don't catch me, Lord. I seen it all with my perfect third eye. Hit the ground running because before I die tomorrow morning, I'm a ball time to sort it all out. Can you spare it down for me, darling? Yeah. Had to reach the highest state of mind I could find for I found my true calling. Yeah. Gateway for drugs to heaven, stuck on 11, a level above expected. Then I descended, the master don't pretending. And I know, but last book is still really the road that I'm on. There's no beginning to no ending, so I've been to the whip. We dipping to the planet, the earth's emerging. You living when the sun comes up. Well, Ben. UFC 216 goes on this Saturday night in Las Vegas uh, in what will be just a few days after the obvious terrible tragedy and greatest or uh, most deadly mass shooting in the modern history of the United States. As of the time of this recording. As of the time of this recording. By the time this goes up on, you know, or if you're listening to this on Tuesday, uh, the way we're going at this rate in this country, that may no longer be true. Several mass shootings will be able to vie for the title. Uh, this is a statement released from the UFC today from the Twitter account of Kevin Ioli from Yahoo Sports. The UFC says our focus right now is on supporting the community and those affected by Sunday's events. Uh, UFC 216 on Saturday, October 7th at T-Mobile Arena will proceed as scheduled until further notice. Uh, so that's where we are as we record this, and that means that uh, we think that the main event of UFC 216 this Saturday night, Tony Ferguson against Kevin Lee for the interim UFC lightweight title, is a thing that's going to happen. So we will now discuss it, I as, guess is, as is our practice. <laughs> I, I will say, you know, stuff like this makes it a little difficult to focus on your job talking and writing about pro sports. And I'm sure, you know, especially something like this in Las Vegas really reminds you, Las Vegas is home to so much about the fight game and especially about MMA, you know, home not only to the UFC headquarters, but you really realize it uh, just like looking around social media, how many of the fighters uh, either live in Vegas or have spent enough time in Vegas training and, and working that it feels like kind of a second home, how many media members uh, in the sport live in Vegas. Uh, and so stuff like this really kind of jars home the reality. But yeah. Now we turn our focus to Tony Ferguson and Kevin Lee, T. Ferg versus Kaylee, the whatever player for the women's vo girls volleyball team at uh, the high school Chad Dundas covered as a sports writer for the Missoulian. Um, first of all, I remember when this fight was booked and everybody kind of saying like, okay, Tony Ferguson seems like he's up here. 
I'm doing my hand up higher than I'm about to do it. Uh-huh. And Ke- Kevin Lee seems like he's kind of down here on the way up a little bit, but not quite there. I feel like maybe in the time since we have had a chance to get used to that idea, it seems a little less jarring, the difference between them as far as where they are in their careers. Especially since nobody knows what the hell we're going to do in the future of Lightweight anyway, as we'll discuss in round three. Does it seem more like a more reasonable and just like uh, plausible for the moment fight for you now, having some had some time to think about it? Yeah, well, it seems like the a good example of the new style of UFC matchmaking because as I – hinted at in the introduction to this show. It seemed like uh, Kevin Lee kind of talked his way into this thing, uh, has had numerous impressive uh, UFC performances since coming to the UFC back in 2014, but has also lost to Ally Quinta and lost to Leandro Santos. Uh, and I listed off his, his three most recent opponents uh, during the introduction part. And you wouldn't call those obvious stepping stones to a title, but we all knew that, that interim title, interim title. We all knew that Kevin Lee uh, brings a lot to the table from a promotional standpoint. He seems to have a real good understanding of that part of the fight game. Uh, he's an exciting young prospect, and so the move seems defensible in that regard from the UFC, in my opinion. Uh, and you know, Tony Ferguson, obviously, he's he's been on the the climb for a while now and has been booked in interim lightweight title fights before. Uh, against Habib Nurmagomedov at UFC 209 before that fight had to be canceled when uh, Nurmagomedov was hospitalized due to a bad weight cut uh, and some other stuff. Uh, So we knew Tony Ferguson was probably going to find his way either into a title or interim title fight. And I guess it's the kind of thing where you just think, well, it's a big step up for Kevin Lee, but if he wins it, then obviously he belonged there. Uh, And if he does not win it, it doesn't necessarily set him back all that much as a, a highly touted young prospect in this division. Right. Whereas, okay, let's say that it goes the way odds makers expect it to go. Odds right now have uh, Tony Ferguson at a little better than a 2-1 to favorite, minus 220, what I'm looking at right now. Let's say he goes out there and wins the fight, which I'm expecting. I, I think it's not outlandish to think Kevin Lee might win it, and you know he could very definitely make it tough for Tony Ferguson. But let's say your boy T. Ferg goes out there and wins it, and he gets to be called the interim lightweight champion. What does that mean to you, given the current climate and the, you know, the actual fight he will have to win to get there? Well, it means Tony Ferguson has won about 10 fights in a row, right? At lightweight, which is obviously an accomplishment that you can't sneeze at. It means that uh, he just beat Rafael Dos Anjos uh, in November of last year. Uh, If he wraps that interim title around his waist, I think... Uh, it'll be meaningful for me. I think that Tony Ferguson obviously has been a guy that we viewed as a potential championship level fighter for a while. And it'll be exciting to have a fresh face and some younger talent, uh, you know, as the champion. But I think that probably Tony Ferguson and Kevin Lee are viewing this bout primarily as an audition to maybe get to fight Conor McGregor for the lightweight title, which I know we will talk about more in round number three. But at the same time, I don't know that you can discuss the interim title fight without discussing the actual title and the actual champion, especially when that actual champion uh, is the is the guy that every single person in this sport up to and including uh, welterweights that currently fight in Bellator list as their number one fantasy fight. So like that is clearly the biggest prize here, right? 
Yeah, and I guess, like you mentioned, the, the win over Rafael dos Anjos, which Tony Ferguson looked great in that fight, uh, beat a former lightweight champion in that fight, and, you know, a guy who now uh, up at welterweight finding some success. I guess what I'm wondering is, does a win over Kevin Lee tell you anything that you didn't already know after that one? Yeah, from the Tony Ferguson standpoint, I, I don't really know because you just look at his previous opponents like Dos Anjos, who we mentioned. He had that kind of short notice fight uh, with Lando Venata, which turned out to be uh, way more competitive and frankly way more exciting than than maybe we would have expected. But you, you get past that and it's just like a who's who in guys that you have to claw your way through to get to a title shot in this division, right? With uh, Edson Barbosa, Josh Thompson, Gleason Tebow, uh, Abel Trujillo, Danny Castillo. Like, uh, those are all well-established mid-range lightweight contenders. And Tony Ferguson has, uh, you know, stopped most of them, if not, you know, won unanimous decisions over the rest. Uh, so we know that what he's capable of, and I'm not sure that going out there and beating Kevin Lee uh, is the thing that puts him over the top. Uh, for him, it's probably mostly about the gold, and it's probably mostly about what happens next, which is obviously the exact opposite thing that is on the line here for Kevin Lee, right? If Kevin Lee, Kevin Lee kind of needs to win this to solidify his bona fides as a, a, a top-level lightweight contender. Yeah, well, and then it would be a huge thing for Kevin Lee to, especially with so many people saying how they were surprised that he even found himself in this situation. Like you said, talking about Michael Kies's mom and then winning a, a fight under, you know, at least somewhat questionable circumstances does not usually vault you right into even an interim title fight in the lightweight division in the UFC. If he wins this, then it justifies all of that and he gets to tell everybody to shut up, gets to talk about anybody's mom he wants to. Uh, nobody can do a damn thing about it. Uh, do you think it will succeed in making people take him all the way seriously? Does he just get everything that Tony Ferguson would have got immediately? Do you start talking about Kevin Lee versus Conor McGregor? Because that seems somehow crazier to me than Tony Ferguson versus Conor McGregor. Well, I think the truth is the only matchups you can talk about with any certainty for Conor McGregor are the ones that Conor McGregor goddamn wants, right? Because he's not going to... He's not going to be mandatory into title or, defense or against forced into Kevin Lee. Any kind of like mandatory title defense against anyone, unless it's the thing he wants. Uh, and you know, like I said, Kevin Lee obviously understands the promotional side of the game pretty well. And uh, I think that probably both these guys will have some prepared material going in advance of a potential victory that they will want to employ when they get on the mic when this thing's over. Try to make themselves seem. Uh, more desirable as an opponent for Conor McGregor. And if you're, well, let's, let me flip this question back to you, Ben. If you are Conor McGregor and you see Kevin Lee as a young, promotable guy that you think you can probably beat, does that make him more or less uh, desirable as an opponent than, than like a, a real hard fight against Tony Ferguson? It depends. Has he said anything about my mother? I assume that he will. Okay. Was it complimentary? Ah, uh, no comment. Okay. All right. Uh, if I were Conor McGregor in that situation, I think I would probably take the higher road of demanding that Kevin Lee beat somebody else first before I – like if Kevin Lee could then go turn around and beat your boy Nermy, then – okay, then he's a somebody. Uh, but I think that if you think – if you look at all the potential matchups uh, that Conor McGregor has, Kevin Lee seems – even with a win over Tony Ferguson – it doesn't seem like anybody who had never heard of Kevin Lee before this weekend is suddenly going to know him coming out of it. 
No, I agree with you, and I think that that will be probably the most interesting thing to come out of this interim lightweight title fight will be to see what happens next because, you know, depending on what Conor McGregor decides to do, you've got an interesting but fractured potentially 155-pound title picture since uh, Habib Nurmagomedov is kind of chronically injured, and then you get into guys like Eddie Alvarez, Edson Barboza, Justin Gaethje, uh, Nate Diaz, Dustin Poirier, type individuals. So uh, a lot, I think, remains to be seen about where a division that has consistently been the most competitive division in the UFC goes next. Uh, you want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we will get out of here, move on to round number two, I guess? Sure. What's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me for this week? Well, I don't know if you saw that uh, Chuck Liddell was on the uh, Fortnite recently, and he was talking a little bit about, you know, his job is gone. The, the cushy UFC job that he's had since 2010 that the UFC used to kind of get him to retire, that's gone now uh, under the new ownership, and he's kind of thinking about what he wants to do next with his life. Um, but here's an interesting tidbit in talking about the sale. Uh, Liddell said, congratulations to the guys, man. They did a great job of building a sport in the company, and they were able to sell it for a lot of money. That's a lot of money. It's a crazy amount. I wasn't aware they were even selling. I mean, I heard the rumors and then talked to Dana. He said they weren't. Then they ended up selling a couple weeks later. So I will, really wasn't privy to that, to what was going on. But that's a high number, man. Are you fucking kidding me? You can't even tell your bro, Chuck Liddell. You can't, you don't even trust him enough to like keep a secret. I don't, I know you don't want him spreading it around everywhere. And the UFC was going around internally, even as, uh, media reports were saying that a deal was near done and the UFC was th uh, sending out letters to people like J Jeremy Botter threatening him with legal action, uh, over a report that ended up being true. But your bro, your long-term bro who you used to manage, he comes over here and says like, Hey, what's up with these rumors about a sale? You look him dead in his eye and you lied to that man. Are you fucking kidding me? You couldn't even just say, hey, between us, yes, it's true. Keep a secret, Chuck. You fucking kidding me? I bet you Chuck could keep that secret. What do no, you think? there's no way. <laughs> there's no way. Uh, well, Ben, this is a true story. Last week, uh, as I was writing something for Bleacher Report about what's going on in women's MMA right now, I was considering the perspective women's flyweight division, and I thought to myself, whatever happened to Andrea Lee? Remember her? She was over in Invicta. She used to wear the cowboy hat. She had the... Uh, KGB nickname and yeah. the hammer and sickle on her on her trunks, which Good gimmick. is maybe kind of unfortunate branding right at, now. Yeah, but at the, give us some time. So I looked online and I saw that that day it had been announced that she was going to fight at UFC 216, and I thought, oh, that's cool. Bringing Andrea Lee over. That's a good way to get the get the flyweight division going. Lucky for her, she didn't have to go on the Ultimate Fighter. I basically hit the refresh on the computer, <laughs> and she's been pulled out of the fight because. Apparently, everyone involved forgot that you have to enter the USADA drug testing pool for six months before they, they sign you up for a fight. Oh, and that's right. That they can't waive that because Andrea Lee has a previous positive test for a diuretic that, that she tested positive for back in, uh, I think, what, 2016? Uh, are you fucking kidding me? I'm kidding like, me. No one involved in this thing knew the rules. Their own rules. Until after it had been announced their rules in the media it's just the their rule and they don't know it you fucking kidding me fucking kidding me that's gonna do it for round number one we'll be right back with round number two 
free falling, don't catch me, Lord. I seen it all with my perfect third eye. Hit the ground running because before I die tomorrow morning, I'm a ball time to sort it all out. Can you spare a dime for me, darling? Had to reach the highest state of mind I could find for I found my true calling. Gateway for drugs to heaven, stuck on 11, a level above perspective. Then I descended, a master norm pretending. And I know what lies above is still really the road that I'm on. There's no beginning to no end. So I've been to the whip. We jibbing to the planet, earth emerging. You can live in with the Ray. Ray, let's try to do it again, brother. Chad, Demetrius Johnson, Ray Borg, going to give it another shot. Yep. Didn't even get to it the first time. Nope. So here we're going to do it again. Co-main event, which is weird when you think about it. That you have one actual champion defending his title in what could be a historic title defense, and he has to play second fiddle to some interim crap? Yes, exactly. Okay. What do you think about this the rebook? Like, obviously, Demetrius Johnson really wanted to rebook this thing uh, originally scheduled just for UFC 215. Now we, we bounce it over to UFC 216. Uh, Ray Borg has missed weight on more than one occasion. I know that we were told when he was pulled off the card this last time that it wasn't really uh, having to, anything to do with his weight cut. But, like, does this seem good? Does this seem safe? Does it seem like a risk? Does it seem like all of the above to just turn around and rebook Ray Borg in the 125-pound title fight? It's a tough situation for the UFC because if you don't turn around and rebook him, then it feels punitive, right? Like you're saying, hey, asshole, thanks for getting sick. Uh, now you lost your shot. We're going to go ahead and give it to somebody else. And then you probably have to turn around and wait a while. If you want to have you know, Sergio Pettis or somebody step in there and take that shot, Sergio Pettis probably going to want himself a full camp before he challenges Demetrius fucking Johnson for the flyweight title. So I guess it makes sense that you might as well go ahead and see if you can make it again, especially if you believe him that it was just one of those lightning bolts that can strike anybody, you get the flu or whatever it is on fight week, and, uh, you know, hey, what are the chances it's going to happen again, right? If it's definitely not weight cut related, I guess we'll see. But it does kind of feel still, like even more so now, like we're just trying to go ahead and get this over with, right? The the Demetrius Johnson historic, like, record-breaking uh, title defense. just It already kind of felt that way to me. Now it really feels like, okay, let's just go ahead, let him have his record, and then we can figure out what to do after that. Yeah, poor Demetrius Johnson, man. Like, it seems like the guy simply cannot catch a break. Like, the first time around with Ray Borg, really the only interesting thing about the fight was that Demetrius Johnson was going out there to try to break Anderson Silva's record for consecutive UFC title defenses. He's obviously still trying to do that here at UFC 216 this weekend, but boy, an awful lot of air has come out of that storyline, which I think if you want to make the case that that is kind of a contrived record, you can do it uh, the first time around. The second time around, it it you just double down on that, on the feeling of Let's just get this one over with. Demetrius Johnson can break this record, which is not necessarily uh, the the DiMaggio hit streak record in terms of like being a hallowed number in in the sport. And then we can kind of get on to perhaps more interesting business, both with uh, Cody Garbrandt and TJ Dillashaw fighting for the bantamweight title. Uh, and both those guys, I think, wanting a piece of, of Demetrius Johnson at 125. And you also got the newly signed... Uh, Henry Cejudo versus Sergio Pettis, which could give you a pretty uh, interesting number one contender at 125 pounds if you want. So yes, this is in fact a fight that feels like one we all just want to get out of the way so we can move on. Uh, and ordinarily, I would say maybe that makes it dangerous for the champion. 
I just don't think it makes it dangerous for Demetrius Johnson. Yeah, no, if you think so, and you have $20 you don't want to see again, I'm going to tell you right now, you get some pretty good odds on your boy Ray Borg. Yeah, like an eight to one underdog. I don't know if anybody with a straight face who's been around this sport for very long could look themselves in the mirror and talk them into the idea that perhaps the emotional letdown of UFC 215 would somehow throw Demetrius Johnson off his game or, uh, you know, uh, entice him into an easier training period leading up to this fight. Going to go out there and get assimilated by the Borg? It probably just made him madder, even madder. Okay, so here's a scenario for you. Just just hypothetical. Demetrius Johnson goes out there and just tunes Ray Borg the fuck up, breaks his whole shit, uh, you know, dominant display of violence by the flyweight champion, breaks that record, rah, rah, rah. He gets in the middle of the cage afterwards, gets the microphone in his face, and adamantly insists to fight an actual flyweight next. Again, doing the same stuff where he's just, like, not even entertaining the idea of somebody from bantamweight. Um does the heart break a final time and do we finally does the does, does the public opinion tide turn all the way against Demetrius Johnson at that point because right now you got I feel like you got the hardcores holding on being like people do not appreciate or respect this man's beauty he is a beautiful man uh, he's an artist out there and you guys you don't appreciate it you a bunch of uh, just neanderthals out here wanting to see guys crack each other's skulls open but if he does if he does not finally after he gets his record entertain the idea of some kind of a super fight do you think that then everybody finally loses their patience it would be hard to defend number one because that would be the opposite of what he has said he wants to do right he said he wants to break this record and then fight somebody like cody garbrandt or tj dillashaw and so if he does break this record and and you know turn around and wave to henry cejudo yeah if he uh, says i want the winner of cejudo pettis or something like that you know, those guys fight to determine who, who fights me next. It would be totally reasonable, just uh, if you think of it in a vacuum, and yet at the same time, wouldn't it be a bummer? Yeah, I mean, it would it would only be reasonable to a point, you know, since we just saw him fight Henry Cejudo, and we all have kind of hemmed and hawed around young Serge, feeling like maybe he needs a little bit more time to... Uh, mature in the game before he goes out there and tries to fight Demetrius Johnson. And I think that either Cody Garbrandt or TJ Dillashaw is a fight uh, that you could really get into if you are a serious fan of the sub-155 weight classes. Like, that's kind of the one that we all really want to see Demetrius Johnson take just because he's been so damn good at 125 pounds. Can he take on, you know, one of the best fighters from 135 pounds uh, is... is almost the only interesting question we can ask about his title reign at this point. So I feel like that that would be, that would be a tough one, man. If he goes out there and, and suddenly, you know, calls psych on uh, the idea of fighting Garbrandt or Dillashaw. You're saying that's where he might lose Chad Dundas, might lose him permanently. Well, I don't know that he would lose me, but I would be a little bit disappointed because I don't think that's the fight that anybody wants to see for him next. Would you get out in one hand, a list of Chad Dundas's guys and another hand, a red pen and look from one to the other having to make some hard decisions. No, I would use the, uh, the sliding tiles that I use for the team Dundas rankings. And I might slide Demetrius Johnson down and slide T city up. Okay. <laughs> right. Before he, he goes out for a fight that could tear team Dundas apart against Cub Swanson. 
Wow. I know. It's going to be rough, man. A house know, divided uh, against itself. I don't know what we'll do for that one exactly. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. Uh, we will be moving on to round number three right after this. Free falling, don't catch me, Lord. I've seen it all with my perfect third eye. Hit the ground running because before I die tomorrow morning, I'm a ball time to sort it all out. Can you spare a dime for me, darling? Yeah. Had to reach the highest state of mind I could find for I found my true calling. Yeah. Gateway for drugs to heaven, stuck on 11, a level above perspective. Then I descended in a master long pretending. And I know what lies above is still really the road that I'm on. There's no beginning to no end. So I've been to the whip. We give it to the planet. Earth's emerging. You living with well, Tony Ferguson, Kevin Lee, Polly Malinaji, the Magic Man, Floyd Mayweather, Habib Nurmagomedov, Justin Gaethje, and George St. Pierre, all mentioned by name by Conor McGregor this past week during his first public appearance since his fight against Mayweather uh, over there in Glasgow, Scotland. That's a lot of names. Well, I think as Conor McGregor said himself, it's good to have options, right? It is. And he's really laying it all out there. This is all the stuff that he is reportedly considering. So let me ask you two questions. Question number one, if Ben Folks is the king of the world, what is Conor McGregor's next fight? And question number two, in the real world, it's Nate Diaz, isn't it? <laughs> uh, you know, I was interested to see that his, if I'm answering the second part first, that part of his uh, hedging on Nate Diaz was that Nate Diaz might price himself out of a third fight, which. <laughs> oh, the irony, right? <laughs> the irony. That's not you saying that I don't feel like this is the fight that makes the most sense. It's just you saying, like, I want somebody who is going to, you know, not be so difficult about the chance to get in on some red panty night action. Uh, if you ask me. What fight I, I want to see the most and yet also think is the most defensible, I guess, in a way. Um, I guess I want to see Khabib Nurmagomedov. But I will also accept the winner of Ferguson Lee because that just logically would make a whole lot of sense if the interim lightweight champ uh, fights the actual lightweight champ. Yeah, that's just too too linear, man. Listen, that that won't happen. So my that'll, thinking is just too too much in the box right now. That'll never fly. I agree with you that it would be awesome to see Conor McGregor actually go out there and defend a UFC title uh, against either Nurmagomedov or the Ferguson Lee winner. What about Justin Gaethje though? I guess he's probably uh, going to fight Eddie Alvarez. I would think since they're doing that season of the Ultimate Fighter, right? And but let's let's not lie to ourselves that Conor McGregor can't stick his beak in there anytime he wants and be like. May I cut in? True. And, I mean, Justin Gaethje is going to be a fun fight against absolutely anybody. So I I can kind of see the logic there. I guess I also feel like, though, that if he's going to defend the lightweight title, it needs to be against somebody where it's very, very clear that they deserved a lightweight title shot, you know, eight months ago. That's what that feels like. That's what should happen. I mean, Justin Gaethje, let him have one or two more awesome fights, and then he'll probably be in a position uh, to fight Conor McGregor. But uh, one thing, it would be weird if he let's, let's say he does fight Nurmi, because that seems like probably the toughest fight uh, of that bunch, right? Of against of other lightweights, Nurmi seems like the toughest fight for Conor McGregor. Uh, and yet, wouldn't it be totally bizarre for you to have an interim title fight, 
have one guy win that interim title fight. Yay, he's the interim champion. And then the lightweight champ comes back and defends his title against someone else. Like, that's that's kind of crazy. Yeah, and why would Conor McGregor do that, really? I mean, the only thing that made the Nurmagomedov fight feel halfway probable to me was like that he talked about doing a big event in Moscow, which seems like it would be the kind of thing that appeals to Conor McGregor to do this sort of like over the top spectacle event, uh, maybe with robotic spiders coming out of the ceiling and whatnot. Hey, if they do that in Moscow, Chad, I think you and I should commit right now to starting up a bunch of misleading Facebook posts (laughs) uh, to confuse the Russians about when and where it is. Uh, or like we'll, we'll offer on like free online streams that actually don't work. We got to get back at them somehow is what I'm saying. Yeah. That sounds like we'd be even, even yeah. Steven. There you go. Confuse <laughs> them over the, uh, ticket pricing on they, they subverted versus... our democracy. We made them think that they were getting lower bowl seats and actually they were upper bowl seats. Uh, does Conor McGregor have to win this next one? Like he comes out of, uh, this fight against Floyd Mayweather, which obviously he did not win. He may have performed better than almost everyone expected him to. Given some time to think about it, I feel like we are all more and more coming around to the idea that the reason Conor McGregor performed better in that fight may have been that Floyd Mayweather allowed him to perform better in that fight. Conor McGregor perhaps comes back to the UFC with a, a you know more fans, more interested spectators than he had before. Does he need to win his next MMA fight if indeed just for argument's sake, it is at lightweight. Well, unless you really want to test the resiliency of the brand, yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot depends on who you fight and how you lose, I guess. But, like, I mean, imagine if Conor McGregor went out there uh, and got taken down and choked out by Kevin Lee. Man, the, the fucking plane crashes into the fucking mountain at that point. Yeah, well, and, like, it would, I think it would be a bad look if he gets taken down and controlled by Habib Nurmagomedov. Like, uh, you know, maybe you can defend a loss to George St. Pierre if you went up to 170 to fight him or even 185. Then I feel like you are back in uh, almost consequence-free fun fight territory. What about Nate Diaz, though? Because if we're going to proceed with the idea that Nate Diaz is the most likely and logical next opponent for Conor McGregor just because the reports have been everywhere that that trilogy fight is going to happen... Uh, and I think Conor McGregor probably comes into that fight reasonably confident that he can win it since he won the last one. But is that a must-win fight? Like, if you go out there and get picked apart by Nate Diaz over the course of 25 minutes uh, and lose a split decision or a unanimous decision, uh, how much does that damage the McGregor brand? Well, it has to, because then you lost, you lost not just the fight, but you've lost the trilogy. And depending on how that third fight goes... Uh, if Nate Diaz wins a clear victory either by stoppage or by just, you know, inarguable decision, people are going to look at that second one and be like, hey, I don't even, I'm not even totally confident McGregor deserved to win that one. Uh, which, you know, you could at least have an argument about that. That, that hurts, man. I mean, for one thing, it makes Nate Diaz seem like the fighter of destiny. We always knew he was, uh, or at least he always told us he was. But also, it makes it seem like Conor McGregor managed to, build up a a big Conor McGregor bubble that he cashed in on right before it burst. Before the Mayweather-McGregor boxing fight, I had said the thing that McGregor should do is get on the mic after it's over and say, like, I had the balls to come over here and fight the greatest of all time in his sport. Like, let's see if these any any of these so-called top boxers have the balls to come over and fight me in the octagon. Uh, I'm not going to make a case to you that McGregor versus the magic man, Paulie Malignaggi, 
is a thing that should happen in the UFC's octagon because I feel like it would probably be uh, an event from a competitive standpoint on par with McGregor versus Mayweather in the boxing ring. But is that a saleable fight on pay-per-view, do you think? Like if you, if Pauly Malignaggi was either crazy or desperate enough to come fight Conor McGregor in the UFC, what kind of numbers does that thing do on pay-per-view? Man, I would really like to see one legitimate MMA fight first. Just there are no legitimate MMA fights anymore. It's just <laughs> this is just our life now. Just if we could just let us have a moment to breathe where we get back to just having MMA fights against MMA fighters, then maybe you could talk us into like a just ridiculous reboot of Couture Tony in a way. Um but I think MMA fans will always kind of go for that if they could, they always like that idea of like to kind of paraphrase the Gracies watching a lion get dropped into the ocean so that he can just be another snack for a shark. Like, I think we always kind of have that fantasy of like somebody who's really good in one of these other combat sports will come over into MMA and figure out that there's a whole lot of stuff that they have not planned for yet. So yeah, I mean, people would buy the shit out of that. And I, I think we might feel finally depressed enough to really question what we're doing, although probably not. I'm waiting for Glover Tashira against Jay Cutler. Something like that. <laughs> let's just let's just start mixing matching. Pulling names out of a hat. Wait, so what what would your choice be? Did you did you talk about that? I mean, if I say, okay, Nermi seems like just one off fight the most interesting challenge for Conor McGregor, uh in a barge somewhere outside yeah. St. Petersburg. Yeah. What do you um, say? I think if Tony Ferguson looks really dangerous against Kevin Lee, that that just stylistically would be so much fun that I would like to see Conor McGregor fight Tony Ferguson. But I wouldn't sneeze at Nurmagomedov because I think that that is uh, an interesting fight from a from a competition standpoint too. Uh, and obviously, as you know, I've been beating the drum for George St. Pierre uh, on this show for a while Wait, now. Wait, have you? Well, I've been talking about how it's going to happen. Right, but Does you didn't constitute seem, beating the drum. You didn't seem happy about it. Man, you know I'm always, I'll let my hair down and just let it rip, if that's what we're going to do. That is just nothing anybody has ever said about you. Nobody has ever... <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, maybe that's just how I view myself. <laughs> just like as a fun-loving party guy, just down for whatever. That is the exact opposite of how you would be described by every person who knows you. All right, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, speaking of actual, legitimate, and good mixed martial arts fights that still exist in this world, I present to you... Francis Ngannou versus Alistair Overeem. Ooh, just saying. That's all I've got to say. Just saying. Oh, uh, well. Let's I, do that one. You know what that is? That is you ringing the dinner bell for the MMA gods. Oh, that's right. I called down the thunder. Here yeah. we go. Well, we, at least we all know who to blame now. Jed, I'm just saying, you know, there's been a lot of fights added and taken off of this one. You mentioned uh, Andrea Lee. You also had Paige Van Zandt and Jessica I. And so up until this week, there was some question about what was going to be the fifth fight on the, the pay-per-view portion of the card. And you had a lot of potential candidates there, you know, where you had Will Brooks and Nick Lentz, uh, Bobby Green, Lando Venata, uh, Tom Dukenois, and uh, uh, Cody Stamen. And then what we end up with instead is... Mara Romero Borella versus Kalindra Faria. And I'm just saying, how did we end up with the one fight that gets added to the pay-per-view portion as the only fight on the card where neither of them have a goddamn Wikipedia page? I'm just saying. Just saying. 
kind of feels like someone at the UFC felt like they had already done enough to sell us the pay-per-view, didn't want to take something away from FXX on the prelims, and so instead, we all got to try to figure out who the hell those people are. Yeah, Kalinda Faria was the person who was going to fight Andrea Lee, right? Yes. Okay, so she just, maybe by virtue of, of previous booking, holds the slot. I don't know. Get a Wikipedia page up in here. That's what I'm saying. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens uh, at UFC 216, and we'll start thinking about the main event we've all been waiting for, Donald Cerrone against Darren Till, which is coming up on October 21st. As for right now, though, we are done, we are through, we are out. So when you're letting your hair down and, and letting it rip... Yep, just getting after it. Maybe wearing a leather jacket with no shirt under it. Okay. Because that was going to be my first question, is what are you wearing while you're doing that? Because I assume it's not this plaid button-up number you got on right now where you, you look like you just came out of a Dinty Moore commercial. A leather jacket with no shirt under it and a pair of football pants. Football pants? Yeah, put the pads in there. For functional reasons? Yes, because I'm down for whatever.